Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We live certainly in a day that is consumed with security. We hear constantly about the need for security, national security, and how we are to achieve that through all kinds of policies and actions, both internal and external to our nation. Or people are always talking about cyber security to us and how we need to back everything up and have all of our passwords protected and secure all of our information or purchase some sort of identity theft uh, protection. Or we, we hear about the need for job security and choosing the right kind of vocation and the kind of jobs that offer the most secure income or the kinds of things we need to do to build job security. Or similarly, people will speak to us of financial security, putting our money in a place that it will be secure for years to come, making moves that will leave us where we don't need to worry about the future. There's concerns about security in relationships, security in marriages, security in all kinds of of emotional and psychological terms. And then, of course, there's the issue of spiritual security, which people may not think about very often. They may not explicitly think about it, but they sense it. They feel the need of it. They feel insecure. They doubt and they worry and wonder if God really cares for them. They have concerns whether God is punishing them. They look at their circumstances or their difficulties or the obstacles they're facing and and think that somehow they might be a sign of God against them or that God has abandoned them. Or some people, on the other hand, may assume that because of their wealth or position or success or even their good deeds, that this is some source of assurance, that because things are going smoothly and because they have better things than maybe another person, that God must certainly be pleased with them until they reach a point where their worldly comforts cause them to forget God or where their worldly comforts are taken away and their whole sense of security is thrown off. Security can be so fleeting for people, especially spiritual security. People are not exactly certain if they have it, and if they do feel they have it, they aren't certain that they'll keep it or that it will last. Well, this is the issue that Paul is taking up for us in Romans chapter 5, and it will be essentially what he deals with in the next four chapters of the book of Romans, all culminating in the grand spotlight of Romans chapter 8 and the celebration that ultimately there will be nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul will deal with a number of issues between here and And there, issues about our relationship to the law, issues about how we are to go about being sanctified, all of this bracketed, however, within this discussion of assurance, within this discussion of security in Christ. The Bible certainly reassures us of our relationship with Christ. It places that security in a a firm position that God who has begun a good work in us will most assuredly complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, that we are already citizens of heaven. Jesus says, 
This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but will raise it up on the last day, that no one will be able to snatch us out of his hand, that our life is hidden together with Christ in God, and that God is the one who, Jude says, is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before him in the presence of his glory with great joy. But of all those passages that are given to us, the real abundance of this truth is laid out for us in rich detail from Romans 5 to 8. That as Paul eventually says, there's, no, there's now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are, as he says in Romans 8, free from any charges that could ever now be brought against us. That God, having already given us His Son, will most certainly go on to give us all things, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, as we said. Or, right here in Romans chapter 5, as he goes to say in verses 8, 9, and 10, that though we were enemies of God, although we were already found to be sinners... That God demonstrated the depth of His love and that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And having died while we were enemies, how much more shall we be saved by His life? In fact, this whole passage sort of radiates with the confidence that you and I are supposed to have in our relationship to God through Christ. Listen to what Paul says. Beginning in verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given for us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is a passage, as I said, that is intended to radiate with confidence. It's intended to communicate to you all of the benefits, all of the gifts, all of the assurances, all of the foundation, all of the anchors that you are supposed to cling to in the midst of your salvation and in the midst of a world that may toss you back and forth with all of its trials and tribulations and obstacles and doubts and fears. Paul says we are called to hope, we are called to joy, we're called to 
assurance. And all of this is built on everything that he has already taught us about the doctrine of justification. You can hear that in the opening verse in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified. That word, therefore, indicates antecedent theology. It indicates theology that's already been given to us, the foundation of everything that we've read, everything we've studied in the book of Romans over these last several months, the whole argument from the beginning, but particularly from verse 3, 21 and forward on the issue of justification. The fact that God has established a way for you and I to be just, to be right, to be found holy and righteous before God. We are inheritors of the righteousness of God because of the work of Christ. We come then and receive all of this forgiveness, righteousness, justification, wholeness before God. We receive all of this by His gracious hand and by faith. In fact, Paul sets this in contrast over and over again against any other way that you could be right with God. Any way in terms of being righteous by your works, righteous by your religious deeds, righteous by your performance, your behavior, your worthiness in any way. Paul sets all of that in contrast, saying that all of that is worthless before God. It is useless before God. It does nothing It does nothing, especially if it's under the law, except bring greater condemnation. Because even those who are religious in their pursuit of God, only in their religion do they manifest the greater hardness of their heart as they hear directly what God demands and yet directly disobey over and over and over again and thus demonstrate how unworthy they are to be in God's presence. This is what Paul has laid out for us in the first four chapters. Standing then under sinful wrath of God, we are justified, not by anything we do, but by believing. Like Abraham believed, we believe in God, and God credits. He accounts, He transfers to us righteousness. That doesn't come from us, it comes from Him. And so this, all, this, this, this whole chapter, this whole message is built on that foundation. Therefore, if this is true, if everything that, that, that we have talked about is true, there are a number of gifts that are ours as a result of this work of grace. A number of guarantees, if you will, five at least, that Paul presents to us in the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. We'll look at uh, these over the next couple of weeks. But first of all, Paul wants us to understand that since we are justified, we have, he says in verse 1, peace with God. We have peace with God. Because of what's accomplished in Christ and presenting us justified, we now have this relationship defined by peace. You might live in all kinds of relationships that aren't that way. You might live in all kinds of relationships that are marked by tension, by anxiety, by animosity, by fighting, by bickering, by all these other things. You may not have any place in the world that you can say is peaceful. But Paul wants you to know that because of the work of Christ, you have peace 
with God. Peace between you and Him. This is all, of course, built against the backdrop of what he's told us. You remember going back to chapter 1, when Paul opened the formal argument of his book, he told us in verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And Paul goes forward from that point to present the, the, the position of every person born into this world, born under God's wrath, both religious and non-religious, all under the wrath of God, that is the state in which you enter the world, that is the way in which you exist if you are outside of Christ. This is the place where every man, woman, and child is. Very similar to what John says in his gospel in John chapter 3, he who comes from above is above all, he is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthy way. And thus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever doesn't obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. These are the words of Christ. Christ says, if you're of the earth, if you're from below, I should say, you are of the earth, and if you're of the earth, you're under the wrath of God. You remain there. You abide there. That is the position that you're born under and you stay under before Christ. And even here in Romans chapter 5, Paul confirms this thinking as he moves eventually down in verse 6, speaking about how we were ungodly. We were weak in that sense. But more particularly, as he says down in verse 9, we were under the wrath of God. We have now been justified, he says, by His blood. Much more shall we be saved uh, saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death. This is the position you were in. You abided under His wrath. You were, as Ephesians 2, 3 says, you were a child of wrath, destined for wrath as the rest of mankind. Under God's wrath, because as Paul says in verse 9, you were sinners. We were all sinners. Later on, as a matter of fact, if you flip over Romans chapter 8, Paul defines this again in that chapter. When he says, or he speaks about how we were before Christ. And he speaks about how the mind that was set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it doesn't submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Which is where we were before Christ. Unbelievers may not think of themselves as the enemies of God. They may not go through their life with some conscious feeling of hatred towards God. They may not feel like they're actively in opposition to Him. In fact, many unbelievers might in fact pray to God. They might tell you that they lift up their heart in prayer all the time. They might tell you that they have faith, that they believe, that they hope. They might say all of these things, but the reality is, the Bible says, you are hostile in your mind 
against God. And what it's talking about is that you are disobeying and you are disregarding God's authority and God's word over your life. You are, in one word, disobedient. And because you're disobedient, you are at enmity with God. And because you're at enmity with God, you are under God's wrath. And under God's wrath, He counts you Whether you sense it or feel it or even believe it or not, he counts you as an enemy. You're an enemy with him. And so God is angry with you if you're not in Christ. In fact, Psalm 7 verse 11 says God is a righteous judge and he feels indignation every day. Every day, because of his holy character, because of righteous character, he sees righteousness violated, he sees his standards thwarted, he sees them set aside, he sees them disregarded, and he doesn't take it lightly. He looks at it for what it is. It is antagonism against him, against his will, and it brings guilt Now, you might say, well, I know that's the way the Bible presents God in the Old Testament. And we know that God in the Old Testament was the wrathful God. He was the angry God. He was the God who was always pouring out judgment on peoples and all those things. I, I understand all those Old Testament stories. But, but the God in the New Testament is a God of love. I mean, He's a God who loves everybody. He's a God who's kind and gracious and, and is supposed to love even His enemies and all that. And all that has led some people then to suggest that wrath is not an issue with God that wrath was never an issue with God, that the cross of Jesus Christ was, was uh, enacted for the purpose of maybe bringing about cleansing, but has nothing to do with wrath, that, that we stood before God as impure, but God wasn't angry with us about that. God might have felt pity for us, but He wasn't mad, He wasn't wrathful, He wasn't angry. That's not the God of the New Testament. He just wanted to clean us up. He just wanted to purify us. If you ever hear people, these people speak about wrath, they speak about it as some sort of impersonal force outside of God, a sort of eternal uh, rule of, of reaping and sowing or consequences, a law of consequences. Robert Schuller most famously said, we fabricate our own images of God that unsaved human being, excuse me, that an unsaved human being imagines God to be angry rather than loving. And it's due to our fears, he says, that we have pictured God as threatening rather than the redeeming figure he is. Many have followed Schuller. They've wanted you to remove all of those ideas of God's wrath out of your mind. That you shouldn't speak about God as a wrathful God. You shouldn't think about God as an angry God. All of that is a distortion of God. All of that is just your own fabrication of God. But not according to Paul. According to Paul, God is angry. According to Paul, Paul there is wrath. According to the New Testament, you are an enemy of God. 
whether you accept it or not. You may not think about God. You may go through your day thinking about all kinds of other things, but you may not think that you're angry with Him, but the Bible says that He's angry with you. And because of that, you have to be rescued. Because of that, his, angry, his anger has to be appeased. This is what Paul told us happened in the cross. Remember back in chapter 3? He tells us that God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation. He put Him forward, verse 25 says, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He may not have poured out all of his anger on you in a moment, but but God has passed over. God has overlooked these sins. It doesn't mean his anger is gone. It just means in his righteousness and in his kindness and his patience, he's overlooked them temporarily. But he sent Christ in order to be a propitiation. That just simply means a satisfaction, someone who could take in his body all of the wrath of God to satisfy the full brunt of that wrath on our behalf and allow him, it says, to be both just, that is right and holy and, and, and angry against sin. He can be both just and at the same time, he can be the justifier, the forgiver, the redeemer, the reconciler of those who were sinful. And on the cross, Jesus Christ presents himself, or God, I should say, presents him. He presents Christ as the vessel to receive all of God's wrath and fury and anger against his enemies. And because of that, because of that, the Scripture says, those who are in Christ are no longer in any way under His wrath. Paul assures the Colossian believers, it was God's good pleasure, he says in Colossians 1, for all the fullness of God to dwell in Christ and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, for although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy, blameless, and without any reproach. No more blame, no more reproach, no more accusation, no more reason for wrath. The wrath has been fully played, excuse me, paid. The price has been fully paid. The wrath has been fully satisfied. And so these words come to us as very sweet. Very sweet. We have been justified and therefore we have peace. Against everything Paul has said in the first four chapters about the wrath of God, about, against everything he said about what God thinks of the world, against everything he said regarding 
the way you were born in this world, the way you lived under the wrath of God, the way that you bore the weight of that. Against all of that stuff now, we hear that we're at peace. We hear down in verse 10 that although we were enemies, we've been reconciled. And Paul introduces this new relationship of God in this chapter as one of peace. It's interesting, the, the verb translated we have is a, a, a present tense participle there, indicating something that, that we already possess. It is something that's not waiting for the future. It's not something we will have. Many believers think that maybe one day they might achieve this relationship of peace. They might somehow work their way up to this. They might somehow finally get rid of all the wrath of God. But Paul says this is something that is established based on the work of Christ. It's a relationship of peace. And it's important to note that what Paul's talking about here isn't necessarily a feeling. He isn't necessarily saying that that you feel peaceful. You may not have felt peaceful when you walked in this morning. In fact, you might have felt when you came here this morning all of your failures. You might have recognized the, the missed opportunities of fellowship with God. You might have thought about all of the times of disobedience. You might have had in your mind all of the failures. You might have been uh, uh, burdened down by the unworthiness that you have to even approach God today, feeling unworthy to pray, feeling unworthy to, to testify, feeling unworthy to exhort others. That might have been what you were feeling when you came in, but the Scripture doesn't base your relationship with God on your feelings. doesn't matter how you feel. The declaration from God is that He is at peace with you. That there is no more anger. There's no more wrath. There's no more condemnation, as Paul eventually says. This isn't speaking about tranquility. There may not always be that in your heart, but it's speaking about objective peace. Now, the good news is that objective peace brings about subjective peace. The realization of that doctrine, the realization of that truth ought to flood our hearts with an inner sense of peace. But whether or not that is there inwardly is not the most important issue. The most important issue is for you to understand outwardly what has been done for you. 1 John chapter 4 says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The one who fears is not mature. He isn't complete. He hasn't fully grasped the love of God. But for the one who's placed his faith in Christ, he stands perfectly justified, having every angry thought from God obliterated because of the work of Christ. And therefore, he is our peace. He is our peace. Your relationship of peace is a permanent reality.
There's a second benefit of the Lord's death and resurrection given to us. It's in verse 2. And we could just call it security in grace. Security in grace. He says in verse 2, through Him, referring at, you know, at the end of verse 1 there to the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, Paul says, we have obtained our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access. Prosagoge is the word. It's, it's a word that basically means a way of approach. And Plutarch uses this word as a way in which enemies might approach their, their antagonist, if you will. But in the New Testament, it's used three times. And in all times, it's used in reference of our access to God. The way of access that we have to God. That although we were cut off, although we were far off, although we were shut off because of our sins and because of our position as enemies, we now have access, open access to Him. Ephesians 2.18, through Him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 3.12, Jesus Christ, it says, our Lord is the one in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And so the idea is that whereas because of sin, we might have fear that God maybe in His wrath and His anger wouldn't receive us, that He would leave us cut off, that He would leave us with no access, we might have fear that God wouldn't want us in His presence. We might have doubts of whether or not we're worthy to even approach Him in prayer or whether we should even lift up a prayer to Him, whether He would even listen to us. In our sin, we might think all of those things that somehow were locked out from His favor or abandoned by God. Paul is telling us that because of the doctrine of justification, because of the truth of the cross, because of this new relationship of peace, we are guaranteed access. We're secured in it. We should be, as he says in Ephesians, bold in it, confident in it. And specifically here, Paul's talking about access or admission into our standing or our position of grace. In other words, there is no falling out of this position of grace. There is no falling back from what God has done for us. Our position of favor, our position of love before God is unshakable. Through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, we have entered the realm of grace, the, re- the realm of God's favor. And just to be clear, this grace, at least in Paul's writings, is very often set over against law. You read Paul very much, you understand that very quickly, that Paul often sets in contrast Law versus grace, law versus grace. In other words, we don't live in the sphere where law governs and dominates. 
We live in the sphere where grace governs and dominates. We don't live in the realm where our relationship is now defined by the law. It's not defined by our performance. It's not defined by how faithful or unfaithful we've been. We now live in the realm where we stand firmly in our relationship with God defined by grace, defined by favor. It's not to say that your relationship with God then will always be defined by prosperity. It's not saying that it's always going to be defined by health and wealth. It may not always, to a watching world, look like the favor of God. That's not what he's talking about. Because the reality is, First of all, sometimes God may discipline us. He may chasten us. It doesn't mean that we're not His beloved children. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 says that if you're not disciplined, you're not a real child. A lack of discipline in your life, a lack of chastening would be a reason to doubt God's love. And so if we pursue a pathway of sin... If we go down a path of waywardness, God brings consequences into our lives that may afflict us, that may cause us to mourn over our actions and over our choices. We don't deny any of that, even if we have a relationship of grace. God still may bring those things into our lives. And on the other hand, Even during times of godliness, even during times of obedience and faithfulness, God may still bring suffering into your life. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that even Jesus, perfect as He was in His holiness, had to learn obedience through the things He suffered. He had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. In fact, you read the history in the scripture, you read the history of the church, God's most choice servants are often the ones who suffered the greatest. Jesus himself says, if this is the way the world treated me, do you think they'll treat you any better? Unfortunately, our faith doesn't grow very well without times of testing. The reality is in times of prosperity are the times that we grow weak. We grow complacent in our faith. And so there may be trials. There may be struggles. There may be challenges in your life. But none of that, none of that is an indication of the wrath of God. None of that is an indication that you have fallen out of this realm of grace. And none of that is an indication that you're back in that position under God's anger. When these times comes, we're not to doubt that God has ended the relationship or that God suddenly doesn't want to be reconciled. We're not to begin wondering if somehow we've lost our standing before God or somehow somehow wonder if He has withdrawn His grace. 
Because justification and peace with God will always mean God is never, ever against you again. He's not against you. No matter what you're feeling in your life, no matter what you may feel in your heart, the lack of tranquility, the doubts and the, and, and, and the thoughts about the struggles you face, the Scripture says He's not against you. You have a relationship of peace. This is exactly why Paul eventually says in verse 3 of chapter 5 right here. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. You see what this relationship does for you? You see what these benefits do for you? They allow you to go into times of suffering and times of hardship. They allow you to enter into the struggles of life and be anchored and be secured in the reality of peace and the reality of grace. Having been justified by faith, you have peace. And having been justified by faith, you are secured forever with access and standing in the grace of God. Well, there's more to come in the weeks to come in this glorious chapter, but much that fills our heart already and much to meditate on. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. And as you're standing, just want to speak to you here this morning. If you're here and you're not a believer, you may not hear a message like this very often. People may not tell you that you're under the wrath of God. They may not tell you that God is angry with you, but the Scripture tells you that. But God has brought you here today. He brought you for the sake of of hearing this message that although you are under the wrath of God he reconciles sinners he brings us to a place of peace if God is moving in your heart today and you feel the conviction of your sins and the need to repent we want to encourage you find someone find one of our Bible study teachers find me or one of our elders give us an opportunity so we can show you and demonstrate from you to you from the scripture how God has established peace for all those who trust in Christ our plea is that you wouldn't leave here still under the wrath of God but that you would leave here at peace with him father we're grateful that you have done so much on our behalf we're grateful that it is not up to us for our Our faithfulness wanes and wavers. Our obedience is so inconsistent. Our hands are bloody. Our record is guilty. But Lord, none of that matters because of the grace of our Savior, the gift of His life, the propitiation of His death. None of that matters because of His love for us. And Lord, so we receive from you all that you have to give. We want to know confidently and boldly that we have this access into a grace in which we stand.
And may you confirm in our hearts the joy and the steadfastness of hope that all that truth is meant to bring so that we, in life and in death, may exult in the glory that awaits us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.